If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke, and with me are not those couple guys who talk about <laughs> talk to people who play and cover sports about anything, just not sports. Adam Willard, Gareth Hughes, Joe Reed, our intrepid co-hosts uh, are scattered across the globe. Uh, Adam uh, traveling for work. Uh, Gareth is as well. And Joe Reed is someone who I would only describe as constantly in demand on all fronts. So you're stuck with just me. I know it's a tragedy for the, the, the many, many fans who consistently tell me that they only listen for the banter um, between uh you know between Adam and and Joe and Gareth and myself and, uh, and and frequently skip uh random interviews that I do thank you for that we appreciate you listening uh you don't necessarily always need to let me know that you sk- you skip things that I do on the show but you know what I appreciate the feedback I appreciate you listening so uh you know we're moving around this week but we want to make sure we got a fresh episode in your feed I had a chance recently to sit down with Keith Law. Keith Law is a senior baseball writer for ESPN.com, a very popular analyst on Baseball Tonight, and one of the best social media follows on Twitter in the sports world, not just for his, um, his very strong opinions around baseball and especially around modern statistics in baseball, but for his just really great back and forth with members of the, the baseball uh, fan base out there who love to uh, come at Keith hard about everything from stats to MVP picks. So anyway, Keith Law, what you might not realize, uh, if you follow him from his uh, his work with ESPN's uh, baseball crew, you might not realize that he is someone I would consider to be a grand master in board gaming. What do I mean by that? Well, not only does Keith play board games, own a lot of board games, uh, he reviews them for Paste Magazine on the side. He's someone who does regular reviews of new board games coming out, they're really good. If you're actually looking, if you have kids or, or you like board games and you're just looking for uh, good advice and sound opinions about what's worth the money and, and, and maybe what's not, I highly recommend these. They are very good. Um, and we talk about them uh, you know, in the interview. It's a really fun time. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, you know, we talked about everything from the, the more recent boom in board game production in the last 10 to 15 years to some of the old classics and, um, and our opinions on them. Uh, everything from Monopoly to Candyland to Sorry. Uh, I do want to let you know off the top, we did not get into Hungry Hungry Hippos. So if that's the only reason that you tuned in, you can go ahead and do that thing so many of you do and just skip any section of the show where only I'm on. Okay, those of you who stayed with us, let's get going. So uh, we're going to have the gang back together in a couple days. Uh, we've, uh, we've got some great shows coming up, uh, great guests coming up. But just today, uh, we had a lot of fun with the conversation with Keith. Wanted to make sure that we, uh, we got it out there and uh, enjoy. And uh, if I don't get you at the end, booty rappers, stay booty.
I got to say, man, I love what you do with board games. I, I had a chance to read a bunch of your reviews. I think they're really well written and, and for, for the layperson like myself, very clear in terms of gameplay and like the things I want to know about. So I got I to gotta say, like, when did you first start to do the reviews on the side? And clearly, you've probably had a passion for board games your entire life. But, um, you know, I guess when did this really become the, 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 the interest that it, uh, that it holds for you now? Well, I didn't get back into, like, I loved board games as a kid, but I didn't really get back into them until about mm, eight or nine years ago, maybe, where my wife had found Ticket to Ride at a, I don't know where she got it, but she bought that as a gift for me. And I'd also gotten, um, I I had heard of Settlers of Catan at the time and ended up getting, they had like a two-player version that I picked up. And those were kind of the first two that we started playing. And I mentioned them just in chats with the, the ESPN chats where you know, I'm supposed to stick to baseball, but of course I'm not capable of doing that. <laughs> right. And would see like, I'd get a response from people. Oh, you know, settlers are good. 10, you try this game, you try that game. And so, you know, people make recommendations to me for things all the time. And I often follow through like books, board games, movies, whatever. I, I'm always listening. And I found that the more these games that I explored, the more I liked and started writing up, just reviewing the ones I got on my own site. And then, uh, mine runs the games and comedy sections for Paste Magazine and asked if I would be willing to do new game reviews for them, uh, as a freelancer. And I said, sure, you know, it's a, it, it's, you know, a tiny bit of money, but now I, get the games for free, which is always nice. Yeah. And um, I get to try a lot more games, which I've discovered is a big part of it for me too. As much as I love playing any game, um, and my daughter is 10 now, so she's part of it too. She she has her favorite. But I also just love getting the new game, learning the new rules. You know, a lot of them are the same. You see a lot of the same stuff over and over again. But when you discover something that's novel, I find that I really enjoy that part of it too. And it's just, it's just the three of us sitting down to play a game together. And so that's been, I've been with Pace a little over two years now. Yeah, I mean, I, my daughter's three and a half, so I think we're not quite there in terms of, you know, she can't keep focus very long. <laughs> um, yeah, she's not playing ag- Agricola with you. <laughs> right. Um, but I imagine with a, with a 10-year-old, um, you know, it, it opens up a kind of a world of family game night, family bonding time. I mean, how, how much has that helped, uh, or how much has that been enjoyable for your for your family togetherness? Oh, it's it's huge. I mean, she's been playing. So when she was like four and a half, she saw us playing the Carcassonne app and she wanted to, you know, she wanted to do it. So of course, yeah. here you go. And she, you know, at that point, she's just matching. It is a matching game for at that age. You know, we told her not, don't worry about the score. You know, forget that. Just, just, you know, manipulate the tiles. And that's it. And that was good enough for her. And then over the years, obviously, we've sort of looped her in more and more. There's actually games she will play with me that my wife won't because my wife thinks they're kind of long and boring, but my daughter often finds them more interesting. She actually likes is joking about Agricola. My wife doesn't like it. My daughter does. Yeah. Um, and what's really nice now, though, is my daughter's also at an age now where she wants to, you know, she wants to go in her room and watch some shows on, uh, on her iPad or... yeah. She, uh, you know, now she's texting with friends or occasionally FaceTiming them. And, you know, then we're a little out of the loop. But last night she actually came down after her shower and said, do we have time to play? We have Imhotep. 
um, which is going to be my next review for Paste. And it was a game from last year. It's Egypt-themed. It's very fast. We've been able to play entire games in about a half hour or so. And But the fact that she came down and initiated that feels great. And to know that she's, you know, she wants to spend time with us. She enjoys playing the game. She's a little competitive uh, in a good way at that, too, which is which makes it fun. I mean, it is truly something for the three of us to do when, as she's reaching an age where we don't have so many of those things anymore. Yeah, and in fact, I think I was reading in your all-time list, which I'll ask you about a little bit more in a second. You were, you were talking about mm-hmm. Camel Up, and you were saying, you know, it may not necessarily be my favorite, but it's it's a game that my daughter comes down and wants to play. So what what better critique of it than that, right? I mean, right. if there's legitimate enthusiasm, especially for a non-digital entity, because my daughter's three and a half, and she spends all her day, or she wants to spend all her day on the iPad playing My Little Pony yeah. apps and stuff, um, that ga- that playability and the inter- driving the interest of young people must be a huge factor for the, the way you view success of the game. Yes. Well, it, that's the... It, it's a weird hobby, I mean, in a good way, but I went to Gen Con last year, uh, which is the big board gaming convention in Indianapolis, and it's, it, every type of game was there, including a lot of types of games that I don't play, some role-playing games, things like Magic the Gathering that I'm not involved in. But um, there's, there is a segment of this that is super hardcore, maybe even more hardcore and I tend to go like, and, and I'm referring to sort of game complexity and length. Yeah. And I think people, often people who see those games first sort of dismiss the entire uh, hobby of board gaming. And no, there's actually a ton of these more family friendly games. Ticket to Ride, it takes five minutes to learn. Splendor, the entire rules are basically two sides of, a, of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And it's good. Those are good games. Those are games we play often at the house. Those are games I recommend to everybody. There's lots of those that are very family-friendly. They're very easy to pick up. I often mention in the reviews, too, if a game is really portable, because we do travel as a family, because I travel for work. And if it coincides with one of my daughter's vacations, I'm like, all right, let's all go to wherever, to Nashville, to Arizona, something like that. You can throw a board game in the backpack, obviously take it out of the box. The boxes are all huge. Right. But if you can do that, <laughs> You know, that's to me, that's a, that's absolutely an added value. Um, and sometimes it doesn't work. Some of these games have a million parts, but we've got a bunch that are, hey, it's just a deck of cards and a few tokens, and that's the whole thing. And then we can play it in a hotel room or whatever. And it, again, it keeps us all together. Whereas, you know, when you're traveling too, it's like, all right, everyone's exhausted. You're back in the hotel. No one wants, you know, you've been together all day. No one wants to do anything. Like, no, no, no. Let's do something together that's just, all right, different from what we've been doing the rest of the day. Yeah, I mean, you have this quote that I that I really gravitated toward where you say, I don't mind a complex game, but I prefer games that offer more with less. There's an elegance in simple rules or mechanics that lead to a fun, competitive game. And I think I, the elegance is what I, you know, is, is what I gravitated toward because I agree. Like if, the, if a game has a simple structure that allows you to, um, you know, for different strategies to work, for everyone to, to sort of get involved and, and for, to understand how to play, I, I tend to gravitate more toward that than like maybe the hardcore complex yep. games. But yet there are people who really, really enjoy the deeper levels of strategy that come from really complicated games. So I'm, I'm sure that you, you in, in reviewing all the games, you see all, all forms of it. Um, yes. How, I mean, I guess, how would, you, how would you weigh the more simple games versus the more complex strategy games in terms of what you, know, what you get out of it personally? I try to hold 
the more complex games. And they, when I say that, I'm talking about the games with the 20-page rule books, with right. the million pieces, like the the games that are going to take two plus hours. Because if it's just two hours on the box, that's a minimum. Like, let's be honest here. The first time you play is going to take three plus. So those are right. those games can be they can be good games. I own a few of those. I review a few of those. But I hold them to a really high standard. Are these rules more complex because it's creating a better game, or are they more complex? because someone decided I want complex rules because I'm just going to keep layering new things on top of this. And cause, and it's obviously the more games that are in the space, it, there's so many of these games out there. A lot of them never even reached the U S if you go to if Gen Con, I would see games that like were, I talked to one, I wish I could remember his name, but the, it was a very small entity based in Massachusetts. And their deal was they go to the conventions in Europe and look specifically for the really complex games that no one else is buying to import here. And part of me was like, hey, I tip your cap to you. You're, you're really doing something good because there is a, a little niche for these types of games. But I'm also thinking like what I'm looking at the games they're bringing over to and saying, God, this is, this is too much for me. I love board games. I'm not playing those. Those games are <laughs> way right. over the top. There's so many rules. And, uh, and it, it seemed a little pointless. I mean, my wife has described some of those games as work. Game is work and it's not a game. It's not play. And yeah. I, oh, granted, I have a higher higher threshold for that, but I don't want that either. I don't want this to ever feel like a chore. Um, and you, often if it's just trying to remember all the rules or trying to remember the, the one that always bugs me is hey, there's eight different ways to score in this game. Hold on. <laughs> Very few people are keeping all those in their head especially the first or second time they're playing the game. Like I, I, oh, the games we played as kids were not necessarily good games, but there's generally one way to score points. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And if you can do that, do that, like in Splendor basically has two ways to score. Ticket to Ride has basically two ways to score. And then the one or two bonus at the end of the game, that's it. And those are great games and they keep it very, very simple. That's what I think all designers should kind of aspire to do is, is in their games. You want a few bonuses at the end, that's fine. I, I get that. It does. Those types of rules tweaked help keep it close so nobody gets routed by the end, you know, before the yeah. game is even over. But keep this simple so that every age can play so that a veteran of the game can play with a newbie and still, you know, keep it fun for everybody at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and, and the big X factor in a lot of these games is the role that luck plays. So do you have mm-hmm. a specific a specific sort of threshold for how much you want luck to trump strategy at various points, or do you just have to take it game by game? I do take it game by game because also I think that it's, you can't, I can't at least, strip out luck from everything else that's involved in the game too. Right. Uh, I have a hard time doing that. I will tell, always try to tell the reader how much I think luck or randomness is a factor. Um, even games like Puerto Rico, which is a very highly rated game. I like it. I don't love it. I think there's a dominant strategy that sort of throws the game off a little for me. You will often see that referred to as a game that has no luck whatsoever, but there is actually a little random tile draw uh, within the game. Now it's tiny. I mean, as, as luck in games goes, that's minimal, but it's still there. And obviously people love the game and are just wanting to overlook that and say that that's just, I guess they would say that's an acceptable level of luck or randomness that nobody really notices it. And I think that's, uh, you know, I sort of view that as, all right, that's sort of the, the bare minimum. 
But what that also also does is that means that there are there, in that game there's one dominant strategy. In a lot of these games, there are maybe two or three clearly dominant strategies, and it does hit the replay value a little bit if there's nothing random, right. exactly the same pretty much every time. And also for you know you're not there yet, but you will be soon. When you're playing with kids, sometimes a little luck or randomness is your friend because yeah. it, keeps it, it sort of flattens things out for you. And like a game like Stone Age that we really love, my daughter's gotten into that now. The there's a there are a bunch of random elements, and there are dice rolls in it. Now you can tweak your strategy a little bit to make the dice play more in your favor, but at the end of the day, you're still rolling dice. And we learned very quickly that flattened it out for us, and so that it kept. My daughter competitive when she hadn't played it. My wife and I played it a bunch before we ever introduced it to her. And you know, then you sort of appreciate, oh, this is this is actually a good thing. This is keeping everybody involved. Um, and uh, and again, it means we can introduce someone new to a game like that. And the first time around, they'll stay more competitive. And especially for a kid too, if they get waxed the first time through, they usually don't want to play again. Right. Well, I I, I agree with you. I think a little luck is good. I, when I was growing up, my favorite game was Risk. Which I always thought mm-hmm. of as a game of strategy, but at the end of the day, it comes down to yeah. <laughs> it comes down to luck and everything. And I and, and I got an appreciation for for the blend because you know I've seen you know I've played a three hour game of Risk before where you know somebody's about to win and they just can't knock off that last piece and the whole game flips. Um, yep. But you know that said, the classical games we're in kind of a new golden age of of board games in that uh, you know post Ticket to Ride, Settlers of Catan. Uh, a Catan, you, you've seen, you know, I think even you, you've written about this. You, you'll see games at Target that you would not have seen, or in the numbers that you would not have seen, you know, twenty years ago. Uh, but you know, how many of the classical games have you introduced your your daughter to, or and or do you carry a, an appreciation for? Because in your list of your top hundred board games of all time, it's not like it's peppered with Monopoly or or Risk or Sorry. I mean, you, you seem very, very much. Um, more focused on things that are in the last 10, 15 years, right? Yeah, I don't think we own... The oldest game I own, there's probably a Monopoly somewhere in the attic, <laughs> but we don't actually... Don't Wait, by the way, by the way do you have a room for them? Like, I'm picturing like a Royal Tenenbaums-esque closet that's just all board games in your house. Oh, I built shelves. I actually have <laughs> shelves in my office. I've tweeted the photo before. I'll have to dig it up, but yes. Because I own at least a hundred at this point. And I own too many. I readily, because, you know, I end up getting 50 new games a year um, for reviews. I rarely buy them at this point. I do. I donated a bunch uh, to my daughter's school um, games. that I just know we're never going to play. Sometimes I get games that are just, I get games that are aimed at younger kids because I'm on distribution lists and, uh, and, um, they just send them almost sort of automatically. It's like, I don't review these types of games, so they're not going to, you know, what else am I going to do with them? I want to put them to good use. Well, hey, man, you um, throw some so saran yeah. wrap on those, and you can re-gift them every holiday. I know. <laughs> 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 um, so the oldest game I think I own is a choir, which I do love. We have not played that with my daughter yet. Um, I think just because we've, you know, she's got her favorites, and then we're reviewing a bunch. That one just come down off the shelf. But the games you mentioned, like like those as a kid, and then I've played. Essentially, they've just been subsumed by better games. Like I wouldn't, I would never want to pull Monopoly or Risk off the shelf because there's better games like yeah. that. Because I own better games at this point. Sorry is one I always hated, even as a kid, because that's truly random. Me too. At that point, let's just let's just play Candyland. I, I always yeah. said I quote quote self a little on this too often, but 
I was playing Candyland with my daughters like six years ago or seven years ago and, and was so annoyed at how dumb the game is. I tweeted, Candyland is the perfect game to play with your kids if you want to teach them that life is pointless and random. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure I've done what every parent's done where it's like, oh, hey, look over there. Just like flip, flip through the cards and manipulate them so that the game will end sooner because it's yeah. excruciating. Um, and it's like I have run across people will mention a game from you know 30 or 40 years ago that was obscure in its day and maybe is now going to get a reprint or seeing a little bit of a second life. Like Those games, I'm always interested because I don't believe it was that there weren't good ideas at the time, but there was no market for it. There was no Kickstarter. You didn't see games coming over from Germany to come to the United States in a new edition. Now there's a bunch of companies that are actively looking for these types of games, there's a market. If you design, if anyone just designs a good game now, if you just get it up on Kickstarter, get a little publicity, you got a shot at getting that game now. Right. Years ago, there were, you know, Parker Brothers and um, Bradley and Hasbro, and that's, that was it. And of course, they were going for the mass market type of games. And, and oh, you didn't Scrabble, which might be my least favorite of all, because that is work. Yeah. I have to memorize yes. lists of two and three letter words. I'm out and I mean I I'm a writer I have an okay vocabulary and I'm not good at Scrabble because I don't know all those bullshit words that I never ever use. Yeah, right. I mean, your top hundred board games list. First of all, you keep a list, uh, a running list on your personal blog. Um, uh, Meadowparty.com is is the is the blog correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Um, I recommend everyone go check it out if you're a fan of games. You you have great summaries of 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 your top hundred. You also mentioned that this is a list you kind of have updated nine times over the years, and it's 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 grown to a list of 100. How much do you obsess over your rankings here? I mean, look, baseball is a sport of of ranking. It's a sport. Yep. Uh, you're you're very much known for for um, the having the authoritative rankings of of baseball prospects. So, how much do you obsess over your own list here? And is it is it more fun, or is it more sort of personal pride to sort of have the the authoritative list of board games? It's uh, the list grew out of reader demand, basically. Like I wasn't people when whenever I write about stuff, uh, music, board games, books, prospects, people ask for lists of rankings. They want sometimes people enjoy it. Look, people just enjoy reading rankings. I do too because they create arguments. Basically, oh, right. I can't believe you left this off. But also, uh, it's a guide. It's a guide for people to say, all right, I want to buy a game. All right, let's look at keep list and start at one and work our way down and, and you know, go find, go till we find one that, that sounds good to us. Um, I, uh, I don't obsess to anyone to the same extent over the board game rankings because, of course, games, you know, if the games aren't changing, my opinions of them might change because we play one more or less over the course of a year. I just update that once a year. And I've decided I'm stopping at 100. The games will change, but I'm not making lists longer than 100. This is enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, what you, the thing I, I spend the most time on then is every year I've been adding you know, 10 to 20 games to the list. Actually, well, now I'm, I, you know, I might play 50 new games in a year. Most of them wouldn't make the list anyway. But the ones that do, I do try to spend a little more time the first time I'm putting them on the list and thinking the same way I do about the baseball lists, which is the pairwise comparisons, this or that, this game or that game, this player or that player. If I'm a GM, which of these, pl- I get a choice of one of these two players, which one am I taking? Right. 
for me, it's the board game is the same thing. And the board game stuff can be tricky. It's almost like comparing the difficulty of comparing position players to pitchers. I am ranking you know, relatively complex strategy games against the lighter games, the ticket to rides, the Dominion, the base game is very simple. It can get complicated because Dominion has something like 59 expansions at this point. But the, the you know, comparing them is it's kind of a similar challenge because they're, yes, they're both games, but they're not really the same kind of game at all. And that's where I end up spending the most time is figuring out where to slot those in, whether they're towards the top or the games that just show up at the very back of the list, which, of course, is the most likely portion to change every year. And, you know, to make sure, because I do, I, I treat it like a buyer's guide. Like, I want right. people to look at this list. And even if they, whether they pull game 100 or they pull game 10, I want them to walk away and say, all right, I got a good recommendation from Keith on that one. I'm going to go back to the list and look again. Because that's, to me, that is, this is for fun, but there is a bit of a responsibility anytime I'm ranking anything like that, where the person reading it is going to make some kind of buying decision as a result. And so when, when I'm looking at like some of your, your top choices, so and I'm pronouncing this right, right? I hope, uh, Carcassonne? Yep. Okay, so that you, you've got that as, as the all-time number one. What is yep. it about that? I've seen it on other lists before. Like, What is it about that game um, that you think clearly makes it an all-time great? It is elegant. The scoring is simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, the setup is almost none. It is, and it's got a fairly short learning curve, even for the scoring. There are num- there are numerous expansions. In fact, I think I just read another one's coming out now. We own two of the expansions plus one came with our base game, which is just the river, some extra tiles. For folks who haven't played Carcassonne, the, you build the board as you go. There's nothing, when the game starts, there's one square tile on the table. And then you start drawing tiles at random. On your turn, you draw one tile, you place it. You don't have a hand to manage. You just simply place the tile wherever you can legally place it. And then, so the board is being built as you go. And it plays as well with two as it does with five. I think some expansions even let you get to six. I've never tried that. Uh, But... As you're going, then you're building on the board, the just based on the patterns on the tiles. You're building cities or roads, or uh, um, there are these little abbeys that you can score points for, and you place your little meeples, your little wooden tokens, on certain structures and try to grow them to score more points. And there's a little competitive component where you can sort of muscle in on someone else's city and make them split the points with you. Mm-hmm. And there's really only one complex thing in the base game for scoring, and that is these farms where you place a token on open space and will score points at the end of the game for all of the closed cities, completed cities that your farm is adjacent to, that you can sort of walk to from your from where you put your little token down. And that's the one really kind of long-range aspect to planning in the game and can result in a ton of points. That's it. I just gave you all of the rules for the entire <laughs> game. And it's got huge replay value because, of course, the board's different every time. And as long as you're playing with someone who's played before and understands, the farm scoring takes you got to play it at least once through to really grasp it. But once you're there, you're, com- you're always competing. Every move you make has, a lo- has ramifications for the scoring. And I love that, that your decisions are never simple. But you're, you've got a limited number of choices. There's only so many things you can do, as opposed to a game where maybe the board's already placed and there's 50 places you can put your token. 
You put the tile down, you choose whether to put a, a little meeple on it, and that's it. Then your turn's over. So the games really tend to move. And they've added some expansions that make the game more complex. They increase the scoring. Some of them are good. Some of them are, are less so. You don't need any of them. Though. The base game, to me alone, is uh, is totally sufficient. And by the way, I mentioned portability earlier. You throw all the tiles in the cloth bag that it comes with and take it on the road. That's all you actually need. Right. The tiles and the meatballs. There's like a scoring board where you just got a piece of paper at a hotel room, which we've done. So it's got kind of everything. And it's one of those games too, it's, especially if someone says to me, I've only played Catan. Of all of these games you've mentioned, what do I do next? That's a perfect one to recommend to anyone. Because you know what? If you liked Catan, this is in the same genre. It's actually shorter and simpler to learn. And uh, uh, again, has that portability. It's fairly inexpensive. Some of these games get a little ridiculous. Yeah, I'm, I'm immune to that now because I get review copies. Yeah, right. I ain't paying I'm not paying eighty bucks for a game. I never was. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned so, re- you mentioned replayability. Um, I also mm-hmm. I, I also know on your on your your number two seven wonders. You said that the you know there were a lot of different strategies that worked, which I think is great too. I think if there's only one way to yeah. win the game, and you get into a pole position or whatever, you know, whatever you know, you get an advantage. You you know, you're kind of you're kind of done. Um, and yep. that game's not going to be something you pull out of the out of the closet or off the shelf. You know, many times, right? What other thing besides replayability, besides like flexibility for strategies, what other things do you think people should definitely look for in a game when you're thinking about making the financial investment to buy it? Yeah, so the learning curve is the big one. Yeah, um, and and I do I will say with Seven Wonders, I love that game. The rules are not that well written, and everyone I've recommended it to comes back and says the same thing too. Man, you're kidding about the rules. But once you play it, it's actually not a difficult game to right. learn. They just have a hard time explaining it. Um, I actually, and I wrote this when I went to Gen Con, Taste had me write a little bit of, just about the experience, too. The, the, the publishers have started spending a lot more time and money on artwork, on the game actually looking attractive, which I've even said to some some publishers that I have good relationships with, too. I'll say, hey, this this one maybe, it's not going to make people grab it off the shelf at Barnes & Noble cause, or, at a, or at a game store, which I've got a couple around me here, too. Um you want that. You want the game to look attractive. You want the artwork to be clear and to be bright so that, one, so that, you know, my wife cares a lot about that. She doesn't want to play certain games. She thinks they're ugly. But also, it's got to be clear. You've got to be able to look at the board quickly or the table and know exactly what's going on. The iconography on these cards, a lot of games try to go this with this language-neutral system of symbols and stuff. The next thing you know, you need, like, a reference card in your hand, like, what is that? What does the arrow mean? What am I doing here? <laughs> right. Like, and, and nobody wants that. Um, and so those are all things I try to include in the reviews, too. And I, the other thing I would say, also, if you're talking about people who are a little bit new to, to these board games, too, check what it says for the time to play. Because for, some games are, sometimes it's dead on, but sometimes those estimates are a little on the conservative side. Yeah. Um, especially for the more complex ones. If the game is telling you it's an hour and a half to two hours, that's your minimum. You're in for the night. And that may be exactly what you But if you're kind of a rookie to these games, don't start there. You can work <laughs> your way up. Or I've said to people, you know what, Agricola has a beautiful app, for definitely for iOS devices. I don't know about Android. Like That way you can learn the game, and it can take you 15, 20 minutes, and then you can make a decision whether you want to invest in, I think it's $50 now in the latest edition. You can sort of test it out a little bit beforehand to see because, yeah, that's one where if you're going to play with some friends, 
you're sitting down for two hours, maybe more if, if not everyone knows the game that well. And like I said, if that's your call, if that's what you love in a game movie, great. Not everyone does. And I try to speak to the middle of the audience as much as possible, recognizing a lot of folks don't have that time. I get a lot of young parents who are readers and say, hey, it's just the two of us, the kids in bed, we're tired. So yeah. a two-hour game is not happening. I remember those days very well. So I'm completely sympathetic. And, uh, you know, the idea of just sitting down with your spouse or partner and playing a game that takes 40 minutes is very appealing. And we went through a lot of those games, and we still do sometimes. Um, I got a bunch of those on the shelf, and when one shows up that's got a short play time like that, like in Hotel, like Blood of an Englishman I reviewed last week, it's yep. all cards. It takes 20 minutes. Great. You can even play it twice. What a novel concept. Play a game twice in one night. Like, <laughs> and then you pass out on the couch because you're exhausted and your kid's going to be up in three hours. Like that, I know that. I know that feeling very well. Um, is there a game that you really enjoy, but that the, the you know most serious fans just really don't like? like a guilty oh, pleasure, a I guess. One. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, God, you got me like mentally running through my ranking. <laughs> Sorry, um, I didn't mean for this to turn into. Think, no, that's okay. No, that, I mean all the games that I have up top, I think are all pretty highly rated. Yeah, in general, you know, I will get flack from fellows of Catan, which I think now is just sold as Catan, is one of those where it got too popular, and so there's a little backlash within. Board like there's hardcore gamers like it's not that good of a game. You go to boardgamegeek.com and it's not even that highly ranked. I'm like, shut up! Like just because it's popular doesn't make it a bad game, <laughs> right? And that game, we all of us who enjoy this this hobby owe something to sailors of Canada, Klaus Teuber, who's the designer. To I think it's Mayfair now. Is a couple different publishers they've been through. Like they made all this possible. That game, some eventually some game was going to have to break through to make this happen. And that's the one. That's the one that you know showed up on Parks and Recreation, and we see articles about athletes playing it. And, yeah, I mean, it inspired the Cones of Dunshire running gag on Parks and Rec. We needed a game like that to break through. And even though I don't even pull it off the shelf all that often necessarily, I still recognize the role that that game played in just helping this hobby. And by the way, Gen Con had a huge presence too for just for that. In fact, I stood on a. Um, with like a not quite life size, but a giant Catan board on the floor. Right. Had out and they had huge sets of tables as people for people to go out and um for people to play them competitively. Now I'm standing in front of my shelves here. Is there anything we really love? I I have Takanoko rated really highly because it's adorable. I mean it's a good it's a highly rated game. It's a, um set in a Japanese garden and there's a panda token and it's like it's Yes, it's a good game. It might be the cutest game I own. And of course, that was a big appeal. My daughter was like seven or eight at the time that we got it. And she was into it right away. She saw the pan and she was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in right now. Now, you, you mentioned like the gaming community. Now, I, I follow you on, on Twitter. I, I, I know that the baseball community is is very protective of of their, you know, their stats. They're very argumentative. It, it can turn adversarial quickly. Um, and you're not someone who ever backs down from the fans who want to give it to you. What's the gaming community like? Do you find that they share some of those same um, strong opinions and, and sort of uh, that, that same sort of bravado with you? Or do you find that they're just really excited that you're um, you know, bringing, you know, bringing such a light to, 
to gaming and, and it's a different tone of conversation? The vast majority is the the latter. Yeah. That there's, you know, I get a lot of reactions from readers or followers on Twitter who say, oh, I didn't know you were into board games. And they'll, you know, hey, have you played Carcassonne? Have you played Seven Wonders? Which, look, yeah, yes, of course I've played those, but this is good. This is a conversation starter. And I point them to my rankings, and, and then it, it really does get the back and forth going um, where we're really discussing, um, they'll give me other recommendations or they'll, they'll share opinions. Every once in a while, I run into like comic book guy who's like, "Oh, those games are way too simple. I can't believe you have Dominion." Like, sorry, whatever. Like, I'm just, I'm, but I'm not going to engage. Like, engaging some readers to some extent on prospect stuff is a little bit of part of the job, and can often be a way for me to link back to, "Hey, you know, here's here's my rankings. These are objective. This is where these players are." And sometimes it's a chance for me to get a little snarky with people who are just not that smart. And by the way, national writers don't hate your team. We don't have time to hate any team. <laughs> right. <They're> dumb. <laughs> with board games, that's I haven't run into much of that. And every once in a while when someone gets snotty about it, it's like, uh, okay, you know, go have fun in your corner. I'm not, I'm not interested in that argument. There's no pleasure in that. To me, this is, it's been a wonderful experience to do this. As a hobby that's become a freelance thing, never going to be a full-time job. It's still something we all enjoy. It's a great respite from baseball. I love baseball, but baseball's work. It's 100% work at this point. There's no going to a game for fun because it's the workplace. Even if I was there and not working, I'm physically at the place where I do work. I can no longer separate the two. Board games are always going to be fun. And to stand here, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm in the office working and I just look and I just like the way the board games look on the shelf. Yep. Like, oh. This is not. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that. I'm not going to let anyone ruin that for me. Unfortunately for me, I have not run very much of that over the years. And I think it's, there will always be a few, but that's, that's going to be true of any hobby, right? You talk to people who do lots of things, and I'm sure there's, there's that 1% who's trying to ruin it for everyone, no matter what the subject is. Are there ESPN colleagues of yours who are secret gamers? Not really, although I have brought one or two games up to people and played with some of the uh, uh, some of the folks who work behind the scenes on baseball tonight. Like I yeah. have, I think I still have it. The Game of Thrones card game, just that's one of those. That's that's a great game. It's just too long. Everything about it is excellent, but we've never actually played all the way through victory condition because it takes too long. Uh. But a comp. One or two colleagues of mine were big Game of Thrones fans, and I said, you know, I just got this game to review. I can bring it up next week, and you guys want to test it out with me? And they were over the moon. They loved it. We Three of us just got together in the cafeteria, played for like an hour and change. One of them said, this is so, like, uh, he thought the artwork and the characters' skills, like it's all cards, and you're playing cards with characters on them. He said, these, the, the skills they've given to the, the, on the cards are very true to the characters. And I said, that's great, because I only read the first Game of Thrones book didn't like it and that was the end of it for me so he actually one he helped me with the review and two I mean, what a fun thing to do with some coworkers too to get to know guys a little bit better because i'm you know i don't live there i'm parachuting in and out for shows right so it was kind of nice for me to spend some time with a couple of the guys uh outside of the green room outside of the show and get to know them and they, they could get to know me a little bit better too and i mean that's another great thing about board game right you're just having fun and you're really together whether it's with family or with friends you're not like if someone's sitting there playing a board game and also doing stuff on their phone one they're an ass and two they're probably going to lose because you're not paying enough attention right 
Now, do you do you like the social games like apples to apples, things like that? I mean, are I, you most of your rankings and your reviews are clearly strategy games, but I just from a fun right. perspective, do you guys sit down and do that type of stuff? Um, I don't own very many. Uh, it's not out of dislike; it's just sort of not my niche. Yeah, we do have co- we do have code names. I got that a little. I was a little behind the curve on that one. Broke it out at um, Thanksgiving or Christmas. We had some friends over. Like we sort of had the the families friends in the area who had nowhere no local family so i said you know what we don't have anyone who's super local so we just you know i made a big dinner dessert everyone came we played code names a couple of times and it's a huge hit like those are fun yeah. and that's a game that no i mean there's no um there's no rules to learn it's super basic so games like that social games that are look there's this isn't stupid like there's some uh thought involved some party games are just dumb yeah. um this was this is actually a very clever game. It's a very simple design. It was fun, and people were laughing and having fun. And you know, a few of us had a few drinks, which never hurts. That's yeah, we like those. But I've also made it sort of clear, like even to publishers too, don't send me party games um, because one, because that's not really my niche, and two, the opportunity to do that when you have kids are somewhat limited. If I was twenty five again, and we were getting together with friends every weekend, that was a little bit different at the time. Uh, but now it's you know, now my uh, schedule is limited so that we don't get as many opportunities. And playing a game like that once a month maybe is great. You just don't have the same opportunities. So kind of to wrap, wrap things up, because you've given us a ton of time, where should the, 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 the novice start? So if you're like me and you want to get, you know, you, you want to get back into board games with your family, what would you suggest? Mm-hmm. Or even if you just have friends or other things like that, like what would you kind of point people to and say, hey, these three, three games are great entries into the modern gaming golden era. So for if you've got a couple of friends to potentially play with, some of the games we've already discussed here, um, Settlers of Catan requires three. It can take you two hours to play. It doesn't have to. Uh, that's a very good starting point. Not a lot of rules for that one. Carcassonne, I mentioned, just the base game. Very, very simple. Ticket to Ride is good. Maybe if you're playing with a mixture of kids and adults, you can certainly play it all as adults. It's a great game. Uh, it requires a little more physical space to play. That's about the only negative of it. Um, but it doesn't take very long to play. And Dominion, the base game, is one I often recommend to folks who've maybe played something like Magic the Gathering and understand the idea of you have a deck, you're going to draw five cards every turn, you're going to play what's in your hand, and then return them to the deck. It's not a collectible thing. If ma- uh, Magic is. I've got friends who play it, so I understand the basics of Magic. Whereas Dominion doesn't require any of that. doesn't usually take more than an hour. Pretty simple to pick up. One thing I also try to do is, and then Vulture actually just had me do a piece on Friday to talk about strictly two-player games, because I do get a lot of those questions like I mentioned earlier. Hey, we've got a baby now. It's just two of us. What are some good two-player games? And I always, when I do that top 100 ranking too, I always put a separate list. Hey, here's how I view these games for just two players. So there's a game like Jaipur, J-A-I-P-U-R. It's takes a half hour max. It's only it was designed for two players. The rules are short. Games like that are like Seven Ronin, which is a little more complicated, but still only takes a half hour. And it's if you like the Seven Samurai movie, like I mean, I, I, that was one where I saw the game at Gen Con. So, oh, I'm so in for this. I am like <laughs> very there for a Seven Samurai themed game. Like they take, like I said, a half hour max. There's not a ton of rules. There's not a ton of parts. Very simple to set up and play. And I mean, that's how my wife and I started. We did not... A lot of people get into this stuff because a friend introduced them. 
she and I were just kind of looking for something to do together in the evenings. So we weren't just watching TV every night. Of course, like eight, 10 years ago, there was options on television were not so good. Now we're in peak TV and we're overwhelmed right. by it. But back then too, it was like, we were specifically looking for some two player games, a separate area on the shelf here that is games that's just for two players. And, uh, we, there's some really great ones out there that, uh, like I think publishers have started to recognize too. There's, there is absolutely a market for just two player games. And every time I talk to publishers, a new publisher too, I say, if you've got games that are just for two players, absolutely keep me in mind for those. It's easy for me to test them, obviously. Yeah. And also, I know there's a, there's a specific audience. You're probably in the same boat where, look, I'm not going out for a game night, you know, every weekend because that's hard. You got a kid at home. And uh, the, the games that are just for two players, uh, fortunately, a lot of them are designed with that in mind to keep it simple. The two folks, you know, two parents who are tired can pick it up quickly and get get into the game right away. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, again, I, I encourage everyone to read your board game reviews at Paste because I think they're very clear. You do a great job kind of... I can definitely picture the gameplay very easily, which I don't think is an easy task for writers to do all the time. I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, I used to be a newspaper uh, newspaper critic way back in, in, in the day and, and, and reviewing, you know, pop culture and things like that is, is very <laughs> demanding and tricky. So to be able to sort yeah. of picture it is, is great. I will. T I need to change topics for one second because you have a lot yeah. of other rankings on your website. The top forty pizzerias is something I'm sure you get a, a lot of opinions back yeah. on. Now I live mm -hmm. in Chicago and I see there's a definite no deep dish um, uh, preference deep dish here. How? Yeah, I was oh. gonna say, clarify your stance on deep dish pizza and <laughs> and what what Chicagoans uh, tell you about about your your sort of hot takes here. So. Just for background, for readers, for listeners who have no idea who I am, where I came from, <laughs> I was born and raised on Long Island. I am three quarters Italian. I have family in Italy. My pizza preferences are very clear. I like it thin crust. Yeah. I like the New York style. I love the Neapolitan style, where it's cooked, you know, in an 800 degree oven for 90 seconds. The center might still be a little bit wet. Like that's. A style, those are two separate styles, but that's what I like. It's what I grew up with, and it's absolutely what I prefer. And so those rankings that you see there, those are almost all in that thin crust Neapolitan style vein. Some are not necessarily 100% authentic, but that's where they're coming from. Yeah. To me, deep dish is, is bread. I like bread, um, but that's not pizza. And I would never voluntarily go out and eat deep dish pizza. Even when I'd been in Chicago, there was, I think, Bartoma closed, but that's the place there that did thin crust. I never did get to Great Lakes, which was like very briefly the one of the hottest names in the country. And then they had, I think it was like a lease issue, and suddenly they just closed up shop. And it's like, those, those are the kinds of places that I love. And whenever I travel, too, now this is another nice thing where readers know that this is my style, and they, maybe they've seen my list, and they say, hey, if you go to... Paducah, here's a place that does this kind of pizza. And what a pleasure it is to be on the road and find a local place like that. I avoid chain restaurants like The Plague, just in general. To find a local place, somebody who's, who takes that craft of pizza very seriously and maybe is looking for an audience or a market. And if I can go there, have a great meal, and then maybe spread the word about it, too. I feel like I'm doing something for the local business in addition to just doing something for my body by eating delicious food. But to be able to say, hey, go check this place out. They're doing great work. This is a, you know, maybe a, it's an artist in 
type of food too that is accessible to everybody. Most people like pizza, and uh, that's the kind of thing I love to discover when I'm on the road. And eventually realized I'd been to enough places that I could make a ranking, knowing full well people would go bananas over it, and they have, <laughs> absolutely have. Well, the dirty secret among us Chicagoans is that deep dish is mostly tourist food. Like if we have family <laughs> family from out of town, we'll get a deep dish from Giordano's or Lou Malnati's. Yep. But if it's just me and my wife, man, we're gonna do we're gonna do thin crust because who wants to eat all right. of that stuff? Right? That's, yeah. I mean, it's a giant white carbohydrate bomb. That's not Mr. <laughs> Nutrition obsessed. But if I eat that. I need a nap, and I am old enough that I should probably not be eating, you know, seven hundred calories of white flour at one sitting. Man, well, hey, I, I, I saw it, and I said, well, I got at least, I got at least bring it up for Chicago. But I, I, I must say, I, I agree. I tend to go thin crust, and uh, no shame in that. So, Keith, thank you for giving us all the time. I, we tell everybody to read your columns on ESPN.com. Follow you on baseball tonight. We're getting ready. Pitchers and catchers report this week, right? Yes, they do. I'm not going to go anywhere till. They're actually playing games, but yes, they are starting to arrive in camps now. I'm sure everyone's in the best shapes of their lives. Yeah, and um, and you've got the book Smart Baseball coming out this April. You care to give us just a quick tease of what to expect? Sure, it's out April 25th from Harper Collins. You can pre-order it pretty much anywhere at this point. It is the book designed for. Uh, it was the answer to reader questions. I see you're using all these sabermetric stats. I see you, you say pitcher wins and RBIs and saves are all useless. Where can I read more about this to understand what you're talking about? And so I pitched this to Harper Collins as, all right, this is the book that's going to start from zero. It kind of assumes you know nothing and builds you up. Here's why the here's what the old stats aren't telling you, why they fail. Here's some better stats that everyone has access to that give you a more complete picture of the player. And then I try to look a little bit towards the future. We're all hearing for baseball fans who are listening. You hear about exit velocity and spin rate, other things coming from MLB StatCast. And so I try to at least give a snapshot of where we are right now, even though that space is evolving very quickly and teams are learning more from the StatCast data. It's changing the way the industry works in pretty dramatic fashion. I wanted to try to capture as much of that as I could, at least at the point when I was writing this book towards the end of last year. And so my hope is that you can give this to anyone who's you know, maybe barely a baseball fan doesn't understand advanced stats, or you could read this as somebody who knows that wins are terrible, but might just enjoy watching the, the sort of the takedown of those old stats and then jumps in the middle to get more of the sense of how teams value players now and, and where this industry is headed going forward. Well, it's, it's very helpful because I think as a base, as a casual baseball fan, it does, you, you know, if you, if you don't pay attention, the, the new stats tend to, you know, uh, become so popular so quickly in that sport because I think mm-hmm. they're just so far ahead. You look up and you went, you go, oh geez, I, you know, my wife got pregnant. I didn't follow the Cubs for for two months there, and I feel like I mi- I don't know what I don't even speak the language anymore. So I, it it seems like a great read, and it's coming out in April. You said right, April twenty fifth. Yes, I, I'm at the point now where it's like let's go already. Right, I've been working on this for <laughs> eleven months. I'm ready. Well, and the the board game reviews at Paced. Uh, again, they should follow you on Twitter at Keith Hall. Keith, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, and happy playing, my friend. Yes, my pleasure. You too.